All right, as we get started, I'm sending around an additional map. There's a map in your packet on page 9. I'm sending around an additional map because this one, and um, in hindsight, I mean, there's so many maps that you can use, and uh, I've used a number of them, but this one is very helpful because it identifies, and some of this we don't know for sure, but it identifies a location of a number of the places we're going to be reading about here in chapter uh, um, 13, 14, 15, and so on, in the next uh, day or two, today and next week, even maybe beyond that. But um, what I want to do to just remind you now of a couple of things, if you'll take a look at this, because we're going to jump in here uh, in, in, in just a minute, to uh, the end of chapter 13 and, and, and basically go through the Exodus. Now, I wish I could have a PowerPoint, but you know, obviously I don't have that uh, in where we have our classes. Just find Goshen. That should be, you should be able to find that. We've talked about that many times. But it's the eastern delta of the Nile uh, is where they had settled. That's where Joseph had brought them down um, about 430 years earlier. And then um, around that is, they had been in the area of Ramses. That was a town, a community named after several pharaohs. But anyway, and they will basically head in a south easterly direction. Now, again, what I want to do is go through the whole thing real quick. Just following this basic dotted line, there are going to be a number of those place names that we're going to be reading about in just a few moments. And then they will cross the Red Sea. The miracle of the Red Sea is the very northern end of the, the Gulf of Suez. It has a number of names to it. But this body of water, which is also known as the Red Sea and so on, that's where they're going to cross. That's where the miracle of the Red Sea will occur. Then they're going to go down the eastern coast of the Gulf all the way to the very southern uh, point of the Arabian Peninsula, and this is a fairly agreed-upon location for Mount Sinai. There are a few who think it's at another place, but it's very close to that. Then they're going to head up, and then that, that'll get us beyond where we're going to be for the next several months. So anyway, I just want to work, because now what I'm going to do, instead of holding this up and pointing to all this, I'm going to assume now you know where we are, and I'll just ask you to look at the map and find a couple of these locations as we go through them, Okay. And that's the other thing. This is, it's very important, and I will give you a defense of that in just a moment. It's very important that we affirm that the, the miracle of the Red Sea is here, not here. And I'll explain why in a minute. But we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so if you have that map close by or in front of you, again, I probably won't hold it up again, but I'll just ask you to look at the, the things, Okay. All right, let's get rolling here. Um, let me pick up on, um, again, verse 17 of chapter 13. We had just highlighted that, and then we ran out of time last week. So let me pick up again. All right, what, you, what we have is we have um, the institution of Passover, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of those things, then the consecration of the firstborn, which we talked about last Hope you remember that that God desires the firstborn of every animal and of every family, but then you can redeem your firstborn by the sacrifice of a lamb. Remember all that? 
we talked about. So all of that has now been been instituted. The nation is it is being formed as a nation by the Lord. Their exodus is the liberation from foreign control. He has instituted the calendar, which we talked about uh, last week, and he is about to take them out of Egypt and then give them the law, which is, we won't get to that for, for a couple of weeks. So with all of that, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine territory. And we talked about that last week. That is the northern part here. They would have run right into Philistine fortresses, and that would probably have been devastating for them militarily as well as psychologically. If they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt, God said. So God led them around the desert road toward the Red Sea. Incidentally, that desert road, as it's called, was a mining road. It was a road that was very familiar this was a road that went deep into the Arabian Peninsula where they mine, the Egyptian government mined a lot of very valuable minerals and, and salts and things like that. So they're, not going, they're going in an area where probably some of them were familiar with us. At, at the least, Moses is familiar with it because you know his training and all that we've talked about before. And I just want to, all that you're reading here makes a lot of sense when you understand the geography and the history behind all this, which is important for us to validate the truthfulness of what the Word of God is saying. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. Look at 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Now that takes us back to the very end of the book of Exodus. Last chapter, when Joseph insisted that Jacob and all his descendants take his bones to the promised land and bury him there. So they're fulfilling that. What did I say? Yes, if I said X, I meant Genesis. Thank you for correcting me. Um, I'm glad you guys are awake and are sharp and catch all my mistakes because they are numerous. So good. But <laughs> but anyway, uh, at the end of Exodus. So uh, and incidentally, you might remember uh, that at the end of that chapter in the book of Genesis, he was embalmed. He meaning Joseph was embalmed. You remember that? So that Egyptian technique of preserving the body and so on. Um, is what what had uh, occurred to Joseph. So they're just being obedient to the pledge that they had made to Joseph. Verse 20, after leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham. Now you should be able to find that on your map. At Etham, that's just a little bit north of that. uh, There's a little lake there. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day and night. Neither the pillar or the of cloud or the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now that's both in terms of uh, giving direction and guidance, but you also can just assume intuitively this would have been a source of great comfort and great security for them because this is miraculous. You know, a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire at night is not something you naturally see. So again, I mean, that's important. God had promised that he would go with them and direct them and so on, 
And this is the manifestation of that, pro of that promise. Now, chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 14, is just to alert us to something. Because you know Pharaoh is going to chase them. So what causes Pharaoh to make the decision to chase them? Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm in the beginning of 14, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp at Pi Hirarot between Migdal and the sea. So they're changing direction. And that alerts Pharaoh, because Pharaoh's emissaries are watching. They encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. And again, you should be able to find those locations on your map. We're then getting we're farther south now, near the Gulf of Suez, or what we know as the Red Sea. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So the details of this and the motivation of this from Pharaoh's perspective, we're not sure. He certainly just wants, to, if he possibly can, to get the Jews back for the obvious reasons that they all they had done in plundering Egypt plus uh, their role as, as being a slave for so many hundreds of years. But God is hardening his heart, and it makes it clear for his glory. Now, that, again, that should not disturb you because we studied that earlier. Now, we're almost to the point of the miracle of the Exodus. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt and with the officers over them. So this is a, a formidable military attack force. And the chariot is, uh, the, is the, the chariot is a relatively new part in ancient Near Eastern warfare. And the Egyptians have mastered that. They didn't invent it. It came from the east. But they've mastered that. So a key part of Pharaoh's military are these chariots. So, I mean, you just have to think through, okay, you're an Israelite, you've now left the security of Goshen, and you're approaching a sea, a body of water, and this Pharaoh with his army is chasing you. But notice verse 8, it reminds you of verse 4, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen, troops, pursued the Israelites, overtook them as they camped by the sea at Pi Hirot, opposite Baal Zephon. Again, on your map, you can see the approximate locations of those. Now, verse 10 through 12 must be connected to verse 13 and 14. Verse 10 through 12 is the response of fear. Verse 13 and 14 is the response of faith. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. There were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. And, and I, that is not hard for me to understand why they're terrified. Just humanly speaking. 
And they said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us up to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Fear. Understandable fear. Understandable terror. But what had God just done for them? Delivered them out of Egypt with a remarkable demolishing of the entire Egyptian worldview without question showing he is superior and powerful. Anything Egypt throws, he will deal with. But can you identify with them? Absolutely. I can identify with them. I mean, no matter how much you trust in the Lord, when you have a massive army of Egyptians with chariots and you are a mass of people with children and flocks and everything, you're thinking, and this will be the standard operating procedure, the modus operandi of the, of the Israelites for the next 40 years. So they have faith for a while, and then something will come up, and then they're really terrible. Exactly. It's very similar to me. <laughs> I didn't want to accuse any of you of having that problem. And, and I, I don't want to make light of this, but yet, in a way, it is, it is not difficult to identify with the Israelites here. No matter what God does, no matter how miraculous his acts are, no matter how faithful he is to you, the next crisis in life, your faith is tested. And what God is going to do is he is going to develop the faith of these people. And it's going to take, basically, it's going to take 40 years, and he's going to have to let this initial generation die off and be replaced by their children. And their children will learn those lessons of faith. Now, that not to in any way say that they're going to be much better, but their faith is going to be stronger, and they will be the ones that will go into the land under Joshua and the conquest. So I'm just... It's understandable, but at the same time, you have to think, goodness, all that they have seen, didn't they believe God would take care of them? Pillar of cloud during the day, pillar of fire at night, all he had done. But just humanly speaking, this is an incredible, in the true meaning of that overused word, an incredible situation for them. So what does Moses do? He's the leader. Now, the response of faith. These are great words. Moses answered, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Oh, that's a great statement. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. That's something that Moses never doubted. He had learned. It took him 80 years, but he had learned the worthwhile sufficiency of God in doing what he promised to do. Now Moses, there'll be times that Moses is going to waver, 
but not not in not in a major sense. He will get into trouble in Numbers chapter twenty when he disobeys the Lord, but disobeys not out of faith. He disobeys out of anger. He's so frustrated with the people, he gets so angry with them that uh, God says, "You you've blown it, Moses. You really have blown it." So the, we're to contrast here, and that's very intentional. We're to contrast the response of the people, verses 10 and tw- through 12, of fear, understandable fear. But then the response of Moses, of faith. And Moses' <clears throat> comfort in words of, of, of strength and affirmation of God's capacity to deal with us will cause the people to stand. But Moses must have had some revelation of what was going to happen because he said, you'll never see this army again. I mean, I don't know if, if he saw a picture of where it was going or what, but it, it was it was more than faith just based on past action, I think. It was more <clears throat> based on some revelation. Or Possibly. Something. I mean, if you go back to verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Um, to infer from that that God's going to take care of Pharaoh and his armies, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know, Jim. If I, you know, if if we have, and, and, and it's 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 not enough to reach that conclusion, but it certainly is not outside the realm of what God can do. But you see here, you see here, what the proper role of a leader is supposed to be. And Moses has come a long way. Come on. Remember when he started, when he was being encouraged to start this journey. That's right. And he was finding all those reasons why. He That's exactly right. Somewhere in the meanwhile, he has gotten that faith. And That's it right. Might be like Jim said, he might have a, might have had a. Well, yeah, but he had, he had seen, I mean, he, he had seen all that God had done. And when God said, I will t- I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that what I do to the army of Pharaoh is going to glorify my name. So maybe he didn't know, this is Moses, didn't know exactly how God was going to do it, but he knew God was going to do it. And I mean, God, God has made all these promises. You are going to take these people out of Egypt. You're going you're gonna to take them down to the, to the uh, South Arabian Peninsula, and I'm going to give you my law there. And he knew the plan. And he knew that then they were going to head into Israel, head into the promised land, I should say. But how God was going to do this, how long it was going to take, and he didn't know, but he knew that God was going to. So for him, he was, there's no way God is going to allow Pharaoh to succeed here. So people stand firm. And watch what God does. And whether it was some kind of vision or just believing what God would... He said, these Egyptians you see right now, you're never going to see them again. So it's just, it's incredible faith, but it's the role of a leader. He, if he did not do what he said he would, in this point, where he stands and says, stand firm, if he hadn't done that, you know, the Israelites may have turned and ran or given up or said, Pharaoh will come back or any of the Numa scenarios. But being the leader, in Kent, and that's why a father is to really encourage his family in faith when they're difficult times. A pastor of a church is to encourage his flock in difficult times. 
because our response is to be a response of faith and trust in the Lord. He has not abandoned us. Let's watch him answer this prayer. Let's watch him do this miraculous thing. Let's watch his faithfulness work itself out. But you see, if a leader doesn't have strong faith, how in the world can he encourage his people to have strong faith? And so I just, I love this because, and, and Woody said it twice here already this morning, we have to remember how God has developed Moses. When Moses fled the Pharaoh, Remember through Moses II, when he fled him and ran into the Midian Desert, he wasn't ready to be a man like this. He wasn't ready to lead. And as what he said, after he's near the end of that, he gives God the five reasons why he's not the deliverer. Remember trying to talk God? He's still not ready. But now he's leading. And he's doing what God had marked him to do 80 years ago, or you could even say from eternity. Miracle. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's just a miraculous, it's the same with Abraham. Remember, when we went from Genesis 12 through, through Genesis uh, 20, uh, what is that, 20, 26, when he takes um, Isaac up to Mount Sinai. I mean, the, how Abraham's faith developed over those 25 years, plus about another 10 or 12 years. I mean, that's God, and, you know, without necessarily asking for testimonies. But if we could go around this room, every one of you could probably give examples in your life of how you today are able to trust God for more than you were 10 years ago or however long you've walked with the Lord. And I mean, that's what God's doing. God is developing a lot of things in our lives. But I'm telling you, I know this for certain. The most important thing God wants to develop in our life is faith. If you look at how Jesus, when he was with his disciples for three years, what was the number one thing he was trying to develop in these men? How many times does he say to them, oh, ye of little faith? You've seen me do all this stuff and you still don't believe me? You know, I mean, if I were Jesus, which everyone in this room is so thankful I'm not, but, you know, if I were Jesus, I'd have been so frustrated with these guys. But Jesus, just like the Lord always, Jesus saw the potential in these men of what they would become. They would change the Roman world. So he is in the business of Delphi. That's what Moses is. And so Moses is an exemplary leader here. All right. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. I just love that. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Specific, clear-cut direction. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, I want to, I want to observe five major things that occur from verse 19 down through verse 25. But I want to refer again to the map. I don't have a board here. I, I don't remember if I had a board last week. I think I did. I do have a board? You think? Oh, back here. You think I ought to use that, though? It's just a sheet of paper. Oh, okay. And based on what our brother has said on this being a sheet of paper, I'm going to use it. Thank you. 
yes. interpreting this wrong, and, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army. How will he? By destroying them in the Red Sea. The Egyptians will know that I am the... Oh, the Egyptians. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was reading the Egyptians as being Pharaoh. And the, okay, yeah. never mind. I get it. I get it. Now, the phrase that's translated Red Sea is translating this Hebrew phrase, Yam Suf. Sounds like something you eat before your main course, doesn't it? Yam Suf. Uh, there's been an awful lot... Uh, written about this and how we should understand this. In my, uh, in my book there, Covenant People, I have several paragraphs on this. But this literally means the sea at the end. The sea, that's literally what it means. So what does that mean, the sea at the end? Well, plus, you must remember what we are just about to read. You're not talking about a marshland. You're not talking about a small little lake like you see up farther north. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine the fantastic miracle that we're about to read about occurring on a marshland, which is what some critics of the Bible say. Yamsuv is the sea at the end, the sea at the end of this gulf. That's where, that's where they are. They're at the very northern end of the Gulf of Suez, or the Red Sea. It has different names in in, in, the, in the scriptures. So, all I'm trying to encourage you to, to just, if you look at the map, we are at the very northern end of that, and they are looking at the sea, and to their back is the Pharaoh's armies with all his chariots. So, I'll be blunt. God wants them there. They could have gone north and just gone around it. God wants them there. Why? Because he's going to do a fantastic miracle in five steps. And there is no one that sees that or no one that hears about it or no one that reads it 3,400 years later, which is what we're doing this morning, can conclude anything other than this is a miracle of God. So it's... I don't want you to see this as happenstance, that they just happen now to be staring at the Red Sea or the Gulf of Suez. No, this is God's intentionality. He wants them there. Because he is going to do a fantastic, awesome, truly unbelievable miracle. He's going to part this sea, and then he's going to destroy Pharaoh's army. Got it? I mean, it isn't just a a coincidence that they show up at the Red Sea, the northern edge of the Red Sea. No. God wants them there. Yes, like you said, they could have went around it. Yes, I mean, there are other ways they could have headed down to the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. But God wants them there to do the miracle he's about to do. Because remember, the pillar of uh, a cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night is guiding them. So they just didn't happen to show up here one morning. They are where God wants them to be. And sometimes God puts us in front of a Red Sea in our lives. And there are enemies in the back. And it's a terrible force in front of us. 
said the only thing we can do is cry out to the Lord. Sometime. All right, let's look at what happened. As I said, there are kind of five steps. I'll try to identify them. In verse 19, then the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. Now that's a new piece of information. We hadn't learned that before. But at, as a part of this pillar of uh, cloud and pillar of fire at night and all that, there's an angel involved in this. So this is a supernatural manifestation of, of what the Lord wants. It's an angel. The second thing, the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. What does that mean? Verse 20 explains it. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. So what the angel and the pillar, what it's doing is it's separating Israel as they're standing in front of the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh. They're coming between them. And then it tells us, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so that neither went near the other all night long. What does that mean? The Egyptians cannot advance any farther. And in addition, the Israelites have a source of light. The third step, verse uh, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. We had seen that command back in verse 16. Stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, those of you who have seen the movie Ten Commandments immediately have in your mind what Cecil B. DeMille did. That was a fantastic scene. If you remember how he, he envisioned that. And that was a fairly accurate, you know, fairly accurate picture of what it might have been like. This isn't a marshland they're walking through. This is the Red Sea, and God has supernaturally parted it. Why? Not because there wasn't an easier way for them to do this, but he's going to demonstrate his power to them, Israel, and to Egypt. Just to, You might want to... This, this event is celebrated throughout the scriptures. Psalm 74, Psalm 66, Psalm 106 all, not the whole psalm, but portions of it, celebrate what God has done here. This is one of the most important demonstrations of the power of God. And so it is celebrated and, and exclaimed in that way throughout Scripture. So three things, the angel and the cloud have moved around back. They now separate them. And God, all night, this wind has blown, and God has parted the sea and that dried out the land. So, so the drying of the sea was not instantaneous. That wind blew all night. That's correct. That's correct. Verse number four starts with verse 23. The Egyptians then pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, that would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., <clears throat> The last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of the fire and the cloud, an Egyptian army, and threw it into confusion. 
This is the fifth thing he did. He jammed the wheels of the chariot so that they had difficulty driving. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians. Now, presumably, it's an inference. When they started, the Israelites started what? They're now on the other side. So now the Lord says, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back on the chariots or horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back, covered the chariots, horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Now, Presumably, and this always happened, Pharaoh isn't in that. He's watching it from a fairly high point, just observing what's happening to his army. So what the Lord has done is he has miraculously decimated the entire Egyptian army and its charioteers and saved Israel. They're now on the other side of the Red Sea. Not one of them has been lost, and not one of the Egyptians has been saved. So this is a, a miracle of quite unbelievable proportion, all that God has done. Now, again, one more time. Why did he do that? He explains it. So that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, and so that you Israelites will know that I am Yahweh, and I can be trusted, and I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. So, you know, this, I, 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 can't, I can't repeat this, I'll repeat it one more time, but I can't say it often enough. God is intentional about them being at the Red Sea. They didn't have to go there. I mean, just logistically and logically, that's not the only way they could get into Arabia. But God wants to destroy the Egyptian army, which he could have done in a multiple ways. But he also wants to do something fantastic to demonstrate his power, his glory, and that's parting the Red Sea, so that Israel can walk on dry land. And the Egyptians think they can follow them and safety will be destroyed. It's just a tremendous story. And in many ways, what Cecil B. DeMille did in that movie was he fairly accurately captured what this must have been like. As, as accurate, I guess, you can on a, on a film uh, about that so. Well, that's the biblical account. As I said several times throughout the Old Testament, God will keep bringing this up in both the narratives when he reminds the Israel, he'll do it through the prophets, and he'll do it in the Psalms. This is a big deal in the history of Israel. This is one of those threshold events in their history. All right? Questions or? Just a comment. Yeah. Uh, going on just a little bit ahead, that. Uh, the song of Moses, uh, talking about Moses Great. and the people singing praises, and obviously they had a great deal of faith as a result of that. Absolutely. At least at this point. At this point. Sure comes Well, their faith is going to be tested in the next several weeks. Once they get the law, and, and you remember they're down there at Sinai, Aaron's going to really mess up and We'll read about that in a little bit. 
All right, any other, any questions or comments? I mean, this isn't hard to understand. I mean, that's fairly, the language is fairly evident what's going on, but um, if you're... No, no, not at all. It is, it, it, when you think, again, I mean, that's, God said, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart so that I can attain glory, but you just think in a way of the stupidity of Pharaoh. You know, what's changed? God's just destroyed everything about my civilization, everything about my role in the civilization, uh, that they could succeed in forcibly bringing the Jews back. That's just, how did he ever think that could happen? But the text says twice, God hardened his heart to achieve this great, great glorious event. All right? Well, let's finish this. And then and Woody brought this up. He's always reading ahead. That's... That's good. I'm well, glad you know to hear. I told I told Richard on the way over. I, I never know whether to read a little bit or a lot, and I said I never know where Jim's going to go. And then I said, but I'm sure glad he's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very kind thing for you to say. You never know where I'm going, but that you. That's what my wife always says. I never know where you're going. No, I'm just kidding. Let's uh, finish this, and then we'll look at this great, it's called the Song of Moses. Uh, I, wanna, I really want to take that apart, so let's finish this. But the Israelites went through the sea, I'm in verse 29, on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, don't stumble over that word fear. I mean, fear does mean to be afraid of something, as cowering in fear. But it's also a worship word. So I would want you to really understand that a little more broadly as a worship word. There's worshipful awe of what God has done. And they put their trust in him. So their faith is increasing, and faith in Moses' his servant. Very important result. As so I always struggle with that, is fear in the context of worship. And is it a recognition of just how unbelievably great God's power is? Mm-hmm. His, his person and his power. Goliath, I'm going to fear him, right? But mm-hmm. That's a little different. But still, part of the mix is his power. Mm-hmm. Well, his person, his attributes, and his power. I mean, all of that, you know, when you, when you talk about the Lord, it, it all flows into it. But, you know, Rob, it's what I'm trying to, it's, just, it's, a, it's hard. The word itself, is, there's nothing particularly significant in the Hebrew word that we translate fear. But it's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. And then when you come into the New Testament, of course, it's a Greek word, but it's the same. You know, Solomon will write, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, what does he mean by that? The fear of the Lord. I'm cowering in fear, that's the beginning of wisdom. Or, I mean, that is a natural result because you're talking about the supreme creator, sovereign Lord of the universe. There is a, a realization that you can be afraid of him, but not a fear that he's going to do something evil or bad or harmful to you, which is often what follows 
fear of a storm, a fear of, uh, I don't know what else, you know, can occur, fear of a lion or whatever, because you fear, because it can hurt you, but your fear of God is, as your faith grows, not that he's going to harm you, but your fear is of his incredible power, his almost unimaginable attributes, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, infinite. I mean, you could just rattle them all off. And so it's worshipful, reverential, devoted, all. That's what that means. They've just seen it. And they've seen because then the result of that is the conviction, and I think that's why it's so great, their trust in him grew, is you begin to develop the conviction that that God, whom I now love and worship, always has my best interests at heart. And I'm not sure we always get there. You know, we understand who he is, we understand what he's done, but we still have some of that doubt. Does he really have my best interests at heart? And that's where our faith grows. Yes, he does. My, I, I know I've mentioned that here before. One of my favorite passages is in the Gospel of Mark. I believe it's in chapter 8. But there's a man whose child is very, very ill. And he, the Lord says to him, Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord, I do. I believe you can do this. But help my unbelief. That's a great request of the Lord. I believe. But Lord, I still have an awful lot of doubts, a lot of uncertainty. So help my unbelief. Help my doubts, help me. And that's, I don't know, I think I'm probably accurately reflecting. I know that's where I am often. Lord, I believe. I've seen you do incredible things in my life, but you're facing something else. I believe, but help my unbelief. And so the Israelites are moving along in that path of God developing their faith. But as you will see in the chapters that are going to follow, most of the people that saw that miracle will not enter the promised land because of their lack of trust in the Lord. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Chapter 15, and really almost, not quite, but almost the entire chapter, is what is called the Song of Moses, or more specifically, the Song of Moses and his sister, Miriam. Now, this song, song is also one of the psalms, and it also is repeated, either all of it or portions of it, in the book of Revelation. So this is a song that celebrates the power and majesty and deliverance of God. This is, again, it's, it's, portions of it are repeated in some of the psalms, and it is one of the songs that's sung in the book of Revelation. So this is really an important psalm. So psalms are songs. This is a really important song. So it, it tells us that they sang this song in verse 1. The Moses and the Israelites sang this song. There's no reason for us to conclude anything else than this is what it's saying. They sang this. This is worshipful, joyous exuberance of what God has just done. So let me read it. It's fairly easy to understand, but I want to I want you to just review it with me. I sing to the Lord. There it's Yahweh, capital L O R D. 
where he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. Some translations have the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, when they are singing that right after the Red Sea experience, salvation is meaning deliverance from the threat of the Egyptians. But it will be used in the Psalms of salvation as in salvation from sin. It will be used in the book of Revelation as specifically pointing to Jesus who died on the cross to provide and was resurrected, provide salvation once and for all from sin. So the word salvation, as it is used here in Hebrew, can mean as in justification from sin where it's declared righteous, or it can mean deliverance from a major life-threatening dilemma or, or tragedy in life. And all they're singing is, the Lord is my strength. He's my, my song or my defense. He is my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. I love this. The Lord is a warrior. You don't see that too many times in the Bible. The Lord is a warrior. And we have a society, that, a Christian society, that actively denies that. Why does it say, why does Moses write this? The Lord is a warrior. Mine says, by the way, man of war. Man of war. Why? Why does it say that? Why is that a proper thing to praise God for? He fought for them. He just fought for them. <laughs> they didn't have anything to do with the destruction of the Egyptian army and his charioteers. They have anything to do with that. God did. One of my favorite passages is in Revelation chapter uh, 12, I think it is, where it... Um, I might be wrong on that chapter, but it speaks of Jesus. And it speaks of Jesus being the Lamb. Then the next verse, it speaks of Jesus being the warrior king. So he's a lamb, but he's also warrior king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's all in that section in the book of Revelation. So one commentator has said, you know, it's proper to see Jesus as the warrior lamb. That's, that, that's, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's like, a, it's illogical to put those two together because a lamb is a symbol of peace and reticence. And, you know, you know, a lamb, I'd never think of a lamb as a strong animal. But a lion, the lion of Judah, the warrior. So there's this, seeming contradiction, which it isn't a contradiction, that God, when he wants to be, can be a warrior. And it tells us over and over again in the Bible that the Lord fights for us. We also know that Jesus chose his end. He was obedient in doing so. But it was, it, you know, the New Testament makes it clear that he could have Stopped it any time he wanted. That's right. That's right. So it's just it's, it's just a, a metaphor of God, a warrior. Don't dismiss that. 
that is an element of his revelation. It's an element of who he is. He will fight for you. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Jesus is our advocate. That's a legal term. He stands in defense of us. He fights for us. And the context of that is Satan comes up and says, did you see what Jim Ekman just did? And he's one of yours? And the text says Jesus stands up and says, I bought him with a price. My shed blood bought him. He belongs to me. Revelation chapter 12 says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Who's our defender when we are accused? Jesus. He fights for us. That's all kind of cool stuff to think about the role God plays in our life once we put our faith in him. So the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots, his army were hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. God destroyed the Egyptian army. But look, look at these different labels. Verse 2, strength, defense, my salvation. Verse 3, warrior. Verse 6, majestic in power, your right hand. They're all metaphors or statements or labels or attributes of inestimable adoration, power, and glory. That's Yahweh. What's that? It just goes on. Yeah. Yeah, we're not done yet. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you, excuse me, who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble by the blast of your nostrils, probably a reference to the wind that he sent, right? The waters piled up. But he uses an anthropomorphism. He gives God an attribute of a human. By the blast of your nostrils, the wind, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I'll pursue, I'll overtake them, I'll divide the spoils, I'll gorge myself on them, I'll draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. This is great. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Now, don't forget, when they would have said gods, they're not saying they're real, but they're saying God. Who? God. The gods of Egypt. They just left that civilization where for 430 years they were exposed to that Egyptian worldview and every dimension of it. And they're saying the right thing. Lord, (laughs) nothing compares to you. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. That's a great verse. And when you remember when they uttered that, when they sang that verse, just think of the context. They just came out of a world filled with gods. And the superior one and only true God just demonstrated that he is the one and only God. We're almost done. You stretch out, verse 12, your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies in your unfailing love. That's chesed. That's covenant loyal love. 
You will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling, your land, the land you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Is that true? Yes. We can document it. I just have a few references. In chapter 2, chapter 24, uh, chapter, no, wait a minute. Chapter 2, chapter 5 of the book of Joshua, and in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Just snippets of evidence. Let me give you just one example. When Joshua and the Israelites crossed the Jordan, the very first city they faced is Jericho. Because Joshua's, Joshua's plan to conquer Canaan is the old divide and conquer. He wants to split the Canaanite city-states in half, and then go to the south, conquer them, and go to the north and conquer them. But to split them in half, you've got to take Jericho. Jericho is a very formidable city. Now, do you remember the name Rahab? Rahab was a citizen of Jericho. She was a prostitute. Her brothel was on the wall of the city, the inner wall. There were two walls, the inner wall. But when the spies that Joshua sends in to check out the city, when they meet her, do you recall what she says? I heard the stories of what Yahweh had done in destroying the Egyptian army, and I believed. That's why Rahab is in the royal lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, because she joined the Israelites. She married a Jewish man named Shalom. And she, and it's an amazing aspect of God's grace. But what the Lord, or excuse me, what this song says in verse 14 and 15 is illustrated many times, but specifically, that's why I love to use this, specifically in the person of Rahab. She believed what she was hearing about the God of Israel. And she gets into the covenant community and by God's grace, marries a Jewish man and is in the royal line of Jesus. I don't know. We don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's something to sort of get excited about. Let me ask you something. This is the song being sung by the Israelites. Right. And Moses. In chapter 14, it says, the people have heard, they tremble, Fangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. But what people are they talking about? The people that the people who live in those lands. They're going to hear. They're like projecting that these people have heard what's happened. Will will hear. They will. It's future tense. They will hear of this. It will grip. That's future tense. Will grip the people. It will grip. Be terrified. The chiefs of Edom. Moab, I mean, their future, future tense. They're going to hear these stories. You have a, better, a different version. Mine says, the people, the peoples have heard, they tremble. So it's not forward thinking, but I like your... Well, it, it's in the Hebrew, it is in the future tense. I mean, it really is. Um, that this is, this is what they will hear. But from God's perspective, 
they have already heard it. Now, in other words, because God has, in effect, decreed it, they, in effect, have already heard it, but it's, they will hear it. And th- th- this news spreads very quickly because uh, when Israel starts to, that is, the children of Israel start to move toward Canaan, the Canaanite city-state leaders are absolutely terrified by this. Because, why? Because they heard the stories of the Exodus. And then, when Jericho falls, then there's, oh my goodness, they're in our land. And then, I mean, just see subsequent city after city after city, because there's no Canaan country, it's just a series of city-states, independent city-states. And city-state after city will fall, fall to Joshua. I mean, it really, it's, it's, in a, it's a great book to study from that perspective. That what God said he would do, he does under Joshua. He gives them the land. So, Jim. In your outline, you have two truths to notice. Uh, I'm not there yet. Can I, oh, I, I, I want to finish. Thought we were doing 15. We, we are, but we're not quite done with it. Oh, I, I, okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite done with it. Um, can I finish the song before? Uh, would that be all right? So just let me, verse 16. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in. Now, what's he talking about? The land of Canaan, the promised land. Plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. And the Lord, and um, the place, Lord, made by your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, by your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So um, I'm trying to hurry here because we're almost out of time. It's quarter of. But you have, this is going to spread through Canaan. Then verse 17, God will fulfill his promise to bring them into the land and build his sanctuary there. Then this amazing song concludes with this triumphant statement of God's sovereignty. The Lord reigns. Forever and ever. Two truths, and we'll be done. What you see in this incredible song is the holiness and majesty and power of God in contrast with everything else. The holiness, majesty, and power of God in contrast to everything else. But the second truth is, and that's why I wanted to make sure I read this in verse 17, the purpose of all this, the purpose of the deliverance from Egypt, ultimately, is that God's going to give them the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the end of the song brings us back to that. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God said to Abraham, I will give you this land. Now that was in 2026 B.C. It's now 1446 B.C. And it's going to take another 40 years because of their disobedience of wandering until 1406 B.C. when the conquest under Joshua starts. And according to the book of Joshua, that conquest takes seven years. So by 1399 B.C., God finally fulfills his promise. So, I mean, that's the second truth. The focus of all this, I shouldn't say the focus, the purpose of all this is that now God is going to give them the land. They're out of Egypt. 
He has miraculously delivered them in stage after stage after stage with the final one being the Red Sea. Now they're headed down to Sinai where they're going to get their constitution. And then they head into the promised land, but it's going to take an extra 40 years because of their disobedience. But. And all that is forward. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> absolutely. Can I close with this comment? What Israel did here in chapter 15 is one of the reasons we sing songs and hymns in church. It's a part of worship where we sing praises and glory and adoration to the Lord. Singing is a part of worship. Singing puts in lyrics the theology of who God is. Martin Luther, who was one of the key leaders of the Reformation, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns because he said good doxology, no, excuse me, good theology preached with good hymnology sang produces proper doxology. Now you have to know what each one of those ologies means. Theology through preaching, hymnology through singing produces doxology praise. And that's a good combination. And so that's what they model here. They sang a song of praise to Yahweh because of what he had just done. And they conclude the song with this remarkable statement, Yahweh reigns forever and ever. Is he still reigning? Yes. (laughs) Is he still accomplishing his purposes? Yes. So therefore, for you and me, 3,400 years later, we should still be able to sing, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Praise be to his name. I trust in him. As he demonstrated, he's worthy of our trust? Absolutely. Let's close with that, all right? Let me pray here. Lord, thank you for this. uh, It's familiar, but this great passage of Scripture, the Exodus is concluding with the miracle of the Red Sea. Now, from here on out, they're your people. You've delivered them. You've rescued them. You've redeemed them. Now you're going to give them your law. And Lord, uh, they're just like us in many ways. We see you do remarkable things in our lives, but we still have doubts. And that's okay. As you said, Lord Jesus, to that man in the Gospel of Mark, Do you believe I can do this? Yes, I do, Lord, but help my unbelief. So as we read Scripture, as we study it, we also want to apply it. Lord, help to grow each one of us in our faith, that our capacity to trust you is real, that you are the Lord who reigns forever and ever. That is who you are. So we praise you for that. We affirm and glorify you. And help us as we go about our work and our responsibilities this day and rest of this week. Until we gather again next week, Lord, help us to represent you well. For you are a great God, and we worship, adore, and love you. And we say all this because of the finished work of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.